and cue irritating but copyright safe musical intro. Welcome to episode five of It's Lit But Is It Funny, the podcast where we peer into the dregs left at the bottom of the cup of literary comedy in an attempt to make sense of the leaves before realising that the last thing we actually drank out of it was coffee. My name is Jonathan Pinnock and I'm the author of the Mathematical Mystery Series published by Farago Books, the latest one of which, Bad Day in Minsk, has just been published to near universal acclaim for some sizes of universe anyway. Our guest today is Chris McCrudden, author of the Battlestar Suburbia series, also published by Farago Books, the first of which was described by no less than the Financial Times as festooned with cunning punnery, sharp turns of phrase and jokes about emojis and the internet, making this very much a comic novel of our times. According to his author bio, Chris has been at various points in his life a butcher's boy, a burlesque dancer and a hand model for a giant V for victory sign on Canary Wharf. So much to unpack there, but so little time. Hmm. Welcome aboard. Hello. Hello there, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming. We'll talk more later about Chris and his work. But first, we're going to talk about Emotionally Weird by Kate Atkinson. And normally at this point, I would pull up the Wikipedia page and read off the first part of it. And there's not a lot of information on the Wikipedia page for Emotionally Weird. But I, I can tell you this, this is the third novel by Kate Atkinson, and it was published in 2000. Two mixed reviews. Um, Interesting. Um, <laughs> because the, the, the edition that I have, which is the, the Black Swan edition, all these imprints and nobody knows what they yeah. are, such that's, publishing, that's the one I got, yeah. is is for students because I I do like that um, I do like that verb and it feels quite appropriate given the Scottish <laughs> setting of the novel is uh, for student with praise. You're um, right. It for is emotionally weird and uh, emotionally weird and it's kind of it's sister books. I well I love well obviously I picked this book because I loved it but I think it it's kind of got an awkward pay, awkward place in Kate Atkinson's canon hasn't it mm. yeah because uh, <coughs> I should probably summarise it um, shouldn't I here for the uh, um, for the listeners who've that, never that, even that, heard that that is the first challenge for you to summarise it <laughs> okay so. Emotionally Weird is Kate Atkinson's third novel, and it's a very sort of loose, baggy novel, which is based around the adventures of a, um, a young girl called Effie Andrews, who is trying desperately to get through her last semester um, of study in her degree in English literature, which she's taking at the University of Dundee in the early 70s. She's part of a sort of collective or rag bag of other students, lecturers of kind of various in various states of sort of derangement and uh, and, ex- uh, and eccentricity. 
uh, the kind of at the time of um, lots of student uprisings, sort of changes in the ways that we think about, you know, ourselves, what are students for, what's, what, uh, what society's for. There's a kind of very in, end of the 1960s vibe that kind of suffuses the whole novel. And kind of broadly speaking, the kind of the thrust of the action of the novel is Effie um, sort of blundering through this last semester, getting into lots of, uh, lots of scrapes and then falling dangerously ill. And then another part of the novel is about her convalescing on an island somewhere off the, um, somewhere off the coast of Scotland with her mother, who is a very mysterious figure who's, who's brought her up in a kind of rather sort of haphazard way in various kind of boarding houses and rooms above pubs across the English seaside. And during the, in the process of this strand of the story, Effie gets to know her family history, where she, uh, where she comes from, and kind of the secrets and tragedies inside that family history. And then also going on in the middle of all that action is that Effie wants to be a writer. And most of the students and quite a few of the lecturers who are around her in her life in Duddy also want to be writers. So there's this kind of idea that all of the characters are, you know, trying to kind of like to, to, to drag the novel that's meant to be inside, a, uh, inside of all of us out of themselves with varying degree, varying degrees of success is also kind of a um, sort of a major, stra major strand in the novel. Is that a fair summary, do you think? That, that's a very good summary. Yeah, that is. <laughs> yeah, uh, very impressed. That is excellent. <laughs> so, and the particular appeal to you is, I mean, is, is this a book that would appeal to mainly to writers, do you think, or would be writers? Or no, I mean, general appeal? I, didn't, I didn't honestly remember, because I hadn't picked this book up in maybe over a decade before I reread it, for this podcast but I, I could have I knew that it was about that kind of one of the strands within the novel was about lots of characters in it wanted to be writers but I didn't really get how much the act of writing was kind of written into it mm. until I came back to it looking at it from a different looking at it from a, from a slightly different different perspective of you know now being you know somebody who writes not well not not for a living but you know but kind of like somewhat um somewhat professionally I like it because it's weird mm. it's an unusual novel and I think it's it's not it's sort of it's I like. I'm gonna. I'm gonna modulate that. I like it for the same reason I like the novels of Muriel Spark, in that it's an inherently sort of postmodern novel that wants to play a lot the conventions of what a novel can do and what a novel is for and how you tell a story and what decisions you can make as the author of that story and kind of like in in terms of how it plays out. But it's not hard. So no. Every single sentence that Kate Atkinson writes is you know is you know is, is is a very clear sentence with a very clear structure it leads somewhere she's not necessarily playing sort of lots of clever clever linguistic um, word games or kind of like wanting to you know sort of conceal what she's intending to do as a writer behind, behind quite dense prose and I, I think Muriel Sparkles also does uh, also does something similar but I just I, I just I love the bagginess of it it's it's so it's a bit of a you know a bit of a coming of age story it's a bit postmodern it's a bit of a family saga it's quite funny 
Yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's some lovely games she plays, isn't it, with, with the narrative that, I mean, on page 49, there's a, there's a bit where she says, I looked out of the third floor window as if I'd just seen something interesting, in brackets, which I actually had, but I'll come to that later. And then on page 152, mm. it just says, on page 49, I looked out of the third floor window as if I'd just seen something interesting. And the thing I had seen was dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And it, it's odd little bits like that are scattered through it. Yeah. It's it's quite. It, I like the fact that it's conscious of the fact that it's a book, mm. and it, it it plays with that consciousness. So not not to you know to spoil it for uh, people who kind of want to sort of go into it and read it for themselves. But there are kind of number and kind of like, I think two or three instances in the book where the action literally gets rewound in front of mm. so rewound yeah. in front of your eyes and gets played out differently. And there are, I mean, she, the, the typefaces are significant, aren't yeah. they? That uh, they, they, the various narratives are interspersed, mm. and mm. you can tell where you are in them by the different typefaces. And there, yeah. there are odd little, there are odd little bits where where um, she's arguing with her her would be mother mm. about about whether it's a proper book or not. And yeah, and there's there's a very there's a there's a joke which is set up more towards the beginning of the novel, which is palely played out towards the end of the novel about magic realism, which given that this is a book that was written in the 90s and published at the end of the 90s is, must have been at the time a very good literary joke and kind of, and, and, st- yeah. and, and still lands now. And as someone who has a kind of a somewhat problematic relationship with uh, magic realism as a genre, made me laugh. The um, I, the the typefaces again. I'd forgotten. I went back to it, and, and I think that might have been somewhat influential in a in a kind of unconscious way, or a little bit on my work because I like to play with things like I like to play a little bit with typefaces, bold um, kind of representation of emojis in my book, and thinking mm. about what you know what what text looks like on the page. And how you can manipulate that in the medium of the book, I think, is really interesting. But I, th- I was trying to think about, you know, what is it that you think that's most funny about this book? Yeah, that's the some of the descriptions right at the beginning of, of, of the mm. of the when she introduces people. Yeah, I mean, there's just throwaway things like Bob had recently discovered the meaning of life, a discovery that seemed to have made no difference whatsoever to his everyday existence. Yeah. Although, weirdly, we actually find out what the meaning of life is, according to Bob, later on. And yeah. It's deeply insignificant. There's also, I love Kevin's entrance. Kevin is the, the, the fantasy writer. Yeah. Who, um, spoiler alert, uh, actually makes it very big at the end. But it's, it's, it's a lovely description of him. Kevin was a plump, way-faced boy with a great frizz of bird's nest hair, a kind of English boy's afro, and a pair of small penny rounders wedged on his nose. He had a rash of pimples on his chin, which is misguidedly daubed with peachy-coloured rimmel concealer. Kevin, shunned by the more robust members of his sex, had obviously spent a solitary childhood playing with Meccano and train sets, arranging and rearranging the postage stamps of the world, and standing at the end of a drafty station platform with a flask and small ruled notebook. Yeah. And, uh, it's like... the. the, the, the it, I think as a writer, Kate Atkinson is really good with misfits. Yes. Um, yeah. And I, she has a gift for describing them. I think she has a gift for conveying them with humanity in a way that might that might is a little bit belied by often when they get introduced, she plays them for laughs. 
so the kind of the first couple of first couple of descriptions you kind of read of this person you go oh and that's sort of that that feels a bit one dimensional and then as a writer she's able to kind of round them out in really quite interesting and compelling ways and there's one one bit which I picked out um, last night when I was finishing this off is there's a great set piece towards the end of the novel, which is set in a kind of a quite a, a uh, quite a raucous and weird party. Um, oh, yeah. That uh, that takes place in a mansion that's uh, kind of a former jute jute merchant's mansion, which has kind of been taken over many years after it kind of was abandoned by um, by a group of a group of students. And there's there's a dance going on uh, in one of the rooms. Quite a few of the people were dancing, if it can be called that. Andrea, who's one of the writers, still Shugless, he's another one of the characters, was one of them. Andrea had refined her rather abstract terpsichoreal style at the Isle of Wight Festival so that she now danced like a four-legged octopus in extreme <laughs> pain. <laughs> yeah. Which I yeah, thought was, nice. was a really, well, it's a really lovely turn of phrase. But Andrea, up until that point, has been kind of described as being sort of quite sort of a buttoned up, rather uptight character. Mm. So seeing her in this kind of very, very weird sort of bacchanalian atmosphere, some, some, somewhat cutting loose, is a really good indicator at that, at that juncture, at that point in the novel, that things are going to get really out of hand at this party. It's re it, There's so much of this novel which is really clever and... Like I said, I love the bagginess of it. I wonder, however, whether it wasn't, it didn't get brilliant reception at the time because of that. Mm. It doesn't feel tight. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the, 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 there are so, so, so many gags. In, yeah. Particularly, particularly <clears throat> sorry, in the first, probably the first hundred or so pages particularly. Yeah. Um, and it sort of settles down a little bit after that, but mm -hmm. it, it's, she's just sort of firing off sparks right from the off. Yeah. And there's some lovely things that there's, we slipped out into the shock of a morning that crackled with cold so that every time we spoke, our breath came out in cold white clouds like the speech bubbles in the Beano. Yeah. That's a lovely phrase. Again, another another intertextual joke, though. Um, yeah. Yes. About, <laughs> you know, it's about, it's kind of conveying the fact that, you know, everybody is inside this fictional construct, even when it comes yeah. down when it comes down to the metaphors yeah, that they use, and of course it's all sort of encased within this sort of very hot house. Except she describes a lot of because it, it's set in winter in Dundee, so it's perishingly cold, and it's during the third day week, so the um, the electricity and the heating keeps going off on people. In this in this kind of hot house of you know early postmodern literary theory. So she's in an English department at the beginning of the beginning of the 1970s. What we're seeing is we're seeing the uh, kind of the, the the literal death in front of our eyes against um, of you know the old way of looking at literature as being sort of coherent and whole. You know, embodied in the you know the character of Pro Professor Cousins, who has always taught that way and is literally losing his marbles as as the novel as the novel happens, and that's being replaced by the kind of this incredibly sort of dense kind of self-referential self disappearing into this kind of like internal hall of mirrors of theory, which is embodied by one of the other lecturers, Archie, who comes across in the novel as being a lovable creep. And it's kind of like, the more I think about it, the more they kind of like as a, you know, as a piece of sort of pastiche 
of sort of literary forms, literary theory, kind of the desires of, you know, the desires of writers, this kind of like bizarre will that sort of compels writers on to create, even when, you know, nobody really cares about it, is kind of, it's all in there in the novel. And I think that might make it a somewhat uncomfortable read if you are <laughs> thinking about it. Yeah. I, I, to think about it, I want to be interested to read it alongside some of the other some of the, the male campus novels, the, the Bradleys yeah. and the Lodges. That, yeah, the, what, what, God, is it, I want to say Malcolm... Malcolm Bradbury. Uh, Malcolm Bradbury, I want to say David, Malcolm Bradbury, that's but, yeah. different. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 would I, would I, would, I, I'm sure they're fun, but I think I, I'd rather, I'd rather pull my fingernails out than read a 19, 1970s campus novel by a man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I've, I've read, God, I've read a couple of them, I'm sure. I mean, I'm imagining there might be lots of descriptions of breasts going on. I think you're probably right, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, though, there's a character in Emotionally Weird who is a parody of that, isn't she? Janice, who's, who's, <laughs> whose breasts are very compellingly and very comically, descri comically described. Is that Heather? Yeah, Heather. That's Heather. Enough. Yes, whose nipples follow you around the room. Uh, I wonder whether that's a joke about breasts in campus novels. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. It's only just occurred you could to me. Well be right. That is that is that is definitely that is certainly a possibility. Yeah, but I think there's this kind of like. How would I describe it? I'm going to sound a bit wanky here, but I think the the one of the things that compelled that sort of the the bring keeps me coming back to this novel is, you know, this backiness, the structure and kind of the Rabelaisian characters. Mm. A lot of them are kind of very large, they're very larger than life. They're kind of quite, often they, they're, they're quite sensual beings, as in we have a very sort of defined physical, you know, sense of what they look like and how it's just that little bit revolting. Um, yes. <laughs> so you have Bob, who's got the Zapata moustache and, you know, obviously he doesn't wash very much. Yeah. We have, you know, Archie and Philippa McHugh, who are these kind of parodies of, you know, 1970s lecturers who don't clean their houses very much. Or, you know, Mrs. McHugh and Mrs. Macbeth, who are two very sort of buttoned up nice ladies from Dundee. So we've all, it's, I, I, I think all of, the all of the characters are kind of like physically very well drawn. And it's quite easy for sort of comedy to proceed from those characters as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think it's another thing that struck me is I was when when I, when I started reading this was thinking about how where this fits into Kate Atkinson's career. Yeah, the, I was just thinking about mm -hmm. there's a line uh, quite a long way towards the end when her, her mother yeah. says, you'll never make a crime writer. And she says, this isn't a crime story. This is a comic novel. Yeah. And of course, the very next yeah twist her, her career took her was into crime writing. Yeah, I thought that was oh, uh, uh, again. Oh, actually, that, there was the, the short stories came next, and then, yeah. and then it was case histories. Yeah, the no, yes, I I want I would like to know whether those short story how many of those short stories had been hanging around a long time before they were collected. Seems to be the case with short stories. Yeah, I mean, she was a short story writer. That's how she. That's how she broke through because she won 
the Bridport Prize. She did, didn't she? And um, that actually astounds me because in order to win the Bridport Prize, you have to get through um, mm. several stages of pre-readers, all of whom tend to be obsessed, as far as I can tell, with death, disease and dementia, preferably all three. Mm. And her the first it was the first chapter of behind the scenes of the museum that uh, that actually won yeah which is funny and quirky and, and just not the sort of thing that wins the Bridport prize but also but also a bit about death disease and dementia though i i, I can't remember it's, it's actually the first chapter because i flipped through it just to, not... just to check and i couldn't see anything anything that seemed very classic Bridport. but <laughs> yeah because she was, she was one of those writers who kind of like she kind of like she, she seemed to come out fully formed, didn't she? Yeah, she's mm. like a, she's like Athena exiting from Zeus's skull. <laughs> but and I do think of emotionally weird as kind of being this kind of like you, I mean it's not a surprise because we should see it coming because she had you know behind the scenes at the museum, which is hugely successful, an amazing book, emotionally weird. Emotionally, it's the third. That's the third. That's what we're talking. The human croquet came in the middle. Um, a book which I, a book which I liked when I, I when I read, but I haven't gone back to it. Um, in the same, I was a bit disappointed two. by it. I think, but um... I think that one. I almost think that a lot of her, that her kind of sort of the kind of the touches of magic realism in emotionally weird and kind of her sort of self-conscious use of it and almost her embarrassment about using it in the structure of a novel is might be a reflection on how she had to rely on those tricks really heavily with human croquet. I, I, sh I did see a, an interview where she referred to the first three books as a trilogy of sorts. Yeah. Uh, and she, she, was, she was saying that she'd finished, finished mm. with those and then she was going to move on to something else. Yeah. Which she did. Oh, she did with, with I think the four, the four Jack, Jackson Brodies. Four Jackson Brodies. I think I've read them all. I've, I've read them all. Yeah. I, 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 to be honest, I haven't read any of the ones since then, which is, I keep meaning to. I never get, I've never been around. You know, I'm exactly the same. <laughs> I've got a couple of them. I've got a couple of them sitting on uh, sitting on a shelf, and I do I do keep meaning to meaning to, uh, meaning to go to them. I think those for me, they've. They've been so though the kind of God in Ruins in particular was so larded with praise that I I kind of didn't feel that I could approach it honestly, as it were. Mm. I felt like I'd be sort of trying to read it through the lens of you know what's what Andrew Holgate said about it, or um or what some or what somebody uh, what somebody on Twitter somebody on Twitter said about it. Maybe maybe I'll go back to it. But I thought yeah. I thought. Reading this one, reading emotionally weird this time around, I sensed there was a lot of struggle in it. Yeah, I see what you mean. I think this must have been shit to write. <laughs> <laughs> I can kind of feel that inside it, and also the way she's tried. Get... She's trying to find a plot, <laughs> and yeah. it's eluding her. I think to, yeah. to, to a large extent, and it just and she just about gets away with it. I, I, I tell you what, what weirdly it re reminded me of reading it not long after mm. um, Heartburn, um, the Nora right. Ephron one. Yeah. And, and I, I suddenly, I, that's another book with a lot of, a lot of humour, a lot of snappy descriptions and fairly saggy from the plot point of view, mm. although there is much more of a sort of tragic thrust to it. Yeah. But it, it, 
it struck me as oddly oddly similar style, which surprised me. <laughs> That's it. I've not. Uh, I have to admit, I've never read Heartburn. Oh, it, it, it's great. I, I mean, I wouldn't have read it if, if I hadn't been sort of nudged in that direction um, by by Lev. But it, it's um, it's it's an excellent book. Um, yeah. And and it it is the same sort of snappy summations of of character and uh, snappy dialogue and that sort of thing. And also the, the the breaking of the fourth wall. Yeah, it it it, it sort of goes on in that as well. So um, you know, I I, w- I wouldn't have thought of them being anywhere near close to each other, but uh, yeah. I, I think that there, there are similarities. I can kind of see after wrestling, you know, if you wrestled this book to the ground, maybe it, maybe it was the third novel in the deal, and she was getting a bit tired of it. I don't know. <laughs> um, I can kind of see why you might go why you would logically go to oh crime fiction has a beginning a middle and an end yeah um, i mean there, there is like a wonderful place to go yeah no i i can totally see the attraction of that yeah in yeah. fact in a way you could almost interpret you know the way that she's playing with storytelling in this book as kind of like a way of trying on you know ways of go uh, uh, places to go next as it oh, were yeah well i mean lit Literally, her character in the book is uh, becomes a detective writer. Yeah, it's almost as if she's writing it as writing her life herself. Well, yeah, yeah. And then I suppose there is that. But it, I, I, it, I, it's kind of like she's she's had this really interesting kind of like three careers as a writer, though, hasn't she? Mm. Yeah, which which not which not many of us get. But she had this kind of like no. amazing sort of young voice of you know sort of young sort of post post moderny burst with the first three books and the the short stories. Then she went into went went into crime. Have they ever been? Have those books ever been filmed? Have they ever been turned? Yeah, into yeah. There was ah, who was it? it? Wasn't Jason Isaacs? Was it? Yes, I think it might have been Jason Isaacs. Yeah, now that you think of it. Yeah, yeah, they were good. I can imagine her saying, oh, I'll do some crime. I'll make some lovely money doing it. <laughs> um, because at the time when she was doing this, this at the early noughties, there was the flight of lit fit writers going into genre um, mm. in order to make some cash. The MA that I did back at the, at the beginning of the beginning of the 2000s, my tutor was sort of a very, very fine writer called Susanna Dunn. She was in the process of pivoting from writing sort of literary in inverted commas, women's fiction into historical fiction, mm. uh, and there was quite a lot of that. Yeah, but it it, it is unusual for someone t- to have three successful writing careers. That's true, because the less less successful writers can try all sorts of stuff until yeah. they find something that works. But mm. but it, it is quite extraordinary that uh, she's she's somehow managed that. Well, you only have to look at the kind of the range of reviews inside reviews inside mm. to see that you know that she's gonna she had you know support right out of the gate, which has you know which has um, which has sustained her through all the way. Yeah, not lots of not, lots of kind of reviewers who are still around today. The Jane McDonald for the um, reviewing for the Yorkshire Post, I presume, is not the same icon of the um, icon of the seas, although it would be fun if she were. <laughs> oh yes. Before I went on cruise, before I went on cruise ships, <laughs> I were writing reviews of novels for Yorkshire Post. <laughs> yeah. 
be quite something. She that would, but you know, all power to her. Yeah, absolutely. And I consider you are incredibly successful. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> I suppose, in a way, because this, I suppose, this book, you know, however, you know, however, sort of much they've kind of tried to judge it up on the inside cover, it was kind of seen if we look back on it as being an interesting failure. Yeah. Mm. And she's come back from that. She did something different. She did four books. She did those four detective detective, detective novels. Then she had, then she went and, went and did, how many, is it three books or four now? Ah, there's Life After Life. Life After Life. God in Ruins. Uh, God in Ruins. Transcription. Yeah. Hang on. This is the point when we look at Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Here we go. The line of sight coming out next, and there's another Jackson Brody coming out. Oh, that was, very oh, that was two, oh, that's that. Too. That's been out. It's 2019. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know. She's terribly pretty. Yeah. But I think the 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 Jackson Brodies, though I I like I liked them in a diminishing way. By the time we got to the fourth, I was I was ready for there to be something different with them. Um, mm-hmm. But they were they they felt like terribly terribly different to the first three novels and they're just not being necessarily that zip or inventional comic voice in them mm. no i think uh i think this one it, it stands alone really yeah it was it was good to read it again yeah it's a one of a kind yeah so maybe we can move on and talk about uh about your work i'd be delighted yeah i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> so battle star suburbia battle beyond the dull stars yeah and I'm just trying to sort of think of ways of summarising them. <laughs> so my, I, I struggle with this one. And then my brother did it for me. Go he on. read the first one and sent me a text. He said, oh, your book, it's a bit like 1980s Coronation Street crossed with The Terminator. Yes, that's, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's the vibe I'm going for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... <sighs> I mean the, the the word that sort of is is sort of lurking in the air, and and I I, I did check whether it was appropriate and looked mm. at Susan Sontag and the it, it, yeah. the word the camp camp word yeah which yeah. It, 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 there's definitely camp sensibility to it it's uh, it's self consciously camp science yeah fiction and it, it in some ways that other science fiction seems to have abandoned yes. I think I read when I was writing the when I was doing just before the second one came out, um, I struggled a little bit with a defense of camp in science fiction because it is a little mm. bit of a dirty word. And there are, you know, a couple of voices in science fiction who I like and respect very much, who've written sort of bits. Are written kind of pieces because you have to write these things when when you have a new book new book uh, new book comes out about kind of like how science fiction can like avoid being camp or avoid being campy, and mm. I and I repudiate that utterly. Um, <laughs> so for the for the benefit of the listeners, my um, books Battle Star Suburbia and Battle Beyond the Stole Stars are comic science fiction adventures which are set in a world roughly 10,000 years in the future. The robots have taken over the earth except with one twist. 
robots got intelligence. They caught it from the internet, by the way, but robots caught intelligence before they were robots. So it was a world in which people's toasters and kettles and fridges and laptop computers and phones all woke up the um, woke up one morning and they were intelligent. And it's about it kind of the kind of the the world is about what happens, you know, how with many thousands of years on, where you have a planet that's full of you know intelligent robots who are all descended from consumer appliances, and you know, the plot of the books kind of centres around robots having kicked humanity off the Earth to orbiting council estates, which I've called dull stars, um, and the kind of the, um, the 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 duty and the purpose of humanity is to do cleaning and domestic service. Um, for the robots, because robots don't, you know, save labor anymore. Machines don't save labor, they create it. Um, the first book is about the situation that leads to an, a human rebellion. And the second book is about what happens when that rebellion turns into a war. So it's kind of like, I'm sort of, in a way, trying to explore ideas like, you know, personhood, autonomy, you know, political freedom, things like that. But in a very sort of self-consciously comic and, you know, even comic and even um, even camp framework. Yeah, that that works really well. I I, I mean, where did that sort of, what was the seed that sort of set that that all going? Um, Well, I suppose there were a couple of different ones. Oh, that was it. Well, the the, the seed of the the, the kind of the, the, what originally became the book is Who Cleans the Death Star? Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Someone had to. Mm. Yeah, that's a good, it's, a, it's a good question to ask. And interestingly, that question got answered in the first of the um, first of the sequel trilogy, Star Wars, because John Boyega cleaned the Death Star. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, uh, rather predict, rather predicted that one, but I kind of wanted to look at, you know, what sort of. Things like sort of drudgery, shit jobs, domestic service that you're not particularly happy about, you know, petty bosses, all the things that, you know, that are kind of part of, you know, like part of life and, you know, been hot part of human life for thousands of years. They're all still going to exist in the future. Um, they, but I thought it was interesting to explore it through different power structures. So, you know, yeah. a usual trope is let's put the robots in charge instead of the humans. You know, that's not that's not original, but very but very little is. But my twist on it was thinking about well, you know, if we think about how you know our identity as people comes from our origins, comes from our communities, comes from like where we kind of think about you know our place in the world based on you know where we come from, um, who we surrounded who we've surrounded ourselves with. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if we had intelligent printers? And wouldn't their way of seeing the world and interacting with the world defined by the fact that they had they had a particular purpose? Mm. Yeah, and, and and then on the humor side, there's the fam- there's a familial relationship between uh, who is it? Janice and Kelly. Janice. Two of the main characters, Janice and Kelly, keep a renegade hairdressers and curl, uh, curl up and die. Curl up and die. Love a pun. Yeah, which of course has uh, all hairdressers must be named after the pun. Well, there's a specific curl up and die I named it after, which is on the, which used to be, it might not be there anymore, probably still isn't, it probably isn't because it was 25 years ago now. Um, There was a curl up and die on the ring road around Leeds. And I remember one afternoon kind of getting stuck on Leeds's ring roads, which are are labyrinthine going past curl up and die at least two times. Um, So it stuck with me. 
um, ever yeah. since then. But the everything is material, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah, it might take like decades to percolate through, yeah. but it's material. Yeah, and there's actually a website, isn't there? I'm, I'm sure I found a website once uh, which actually just collected headdresses puns. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. I, yeah. I, there, there, I, there is one somewhere, and unless unless it's, unless it's fallen to disrepute, it was probably about ten years ago. I found I mean, it. It's fallen to disrepute since then. <laughs> <laughs> so. Battle Beyond the Dulcer seemed yeah. to come to a conclusion at the end of it. It's an ending. Yeah. It, 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 is, is there a third one in the works? There is a third one in the works. It's going to be oh, out next excellent. year. It right. turns out that, you know, trying to write a book in lockdown was really fucking hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, lack of external stimulation. Things I learned about myself in lockdown. I could not write a book in prison. Um, <laughs> it's interesting, so, isn't it? Yeah, so that one's the, the new the new book. The new book's going to come out next year. Now we think it's it's a continuation, if not a sequel. Mm. It has some new characters. It has some old characters in it. Mm. Um, and I'm sort of what I because if the the first book is about you know what leads to a rebellion, the second book is about what happens when that rebellion escalates into a full scale war that somebody has to win. And then the third book is about how do you win a piece? All right. Yeah. So I've spent the last, you know, year to 18 months sort of grappling with a book which is about trade deals. Oh, <laughs> God, not the Phantom Menace again, is it? I would trade. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking more of Brexit, but, you know, maybe I will write in some quasi racist characters into the first. Yeah, uh, why not? <laughs> the first page. <laughs> Who talk about you know their plans to um, yeah. the, the plan, plans to inf inflict a damaging a dam a damaging trade deal? But it's it's kind of a book about a book about trade deals and soil. So I think it's, it's I at the minute because I'm I'm still in the middle of it. I think it's going to be an odd book. This one might be my this one might be my, my emotional. <laughs> <idiot>. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, but do do some metafiction or something. Oh, please. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel fully equipped to do metafiction. Yeah. Maybe in something do, else. Do you see that as finishing a trilogy or do you see it as going on beyond that? Or uh... I, don't, I don't know. It's kind of not really in my it's not really in my hands to decide, is it? <laughs> <laughs> my the way that my because my my pattern for kind of books like this and world continuation, lots of people mention Douglas Adams who, you know, is ob obviously was, you know, fairly sort of big influence on me. But I'm kind of more of a Terry Pratchett kind of person. His ability to, you know, to come back to, you know, the same characters, expand the world, tell a different story, but make it self-contained. And, you know, yeah. the, the refer back to one another, but it's not wholly dependent that you should... Mm. That you should you should read them in read them in sequence to uh, sequence to enjoy them. So that's kind of that that if if this world became a thing, that would that would be my pattern for it. I think I don't know it's whether more, you... it's, it's a more sustainable pattern, that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, do do you have a model um, for things like that? Yeah, they tend to sort of flow on from one to the next. Yeah, which means that one of the challenges is to smuggle in the uh, the recapitulation of what's happened previously, yeah. Uh, yeah. without it either getting boring or um, or leaving the new reader totally confused. Yeah, which is why I ended up building a whole wiki to uh, to try and help new joiners. 
<laughs> whether people actually look at it, I don't know. But uh, that is I, I mean, that, that is a decision. <laughs> yeah, it is a decision, um, and it's another sort of albatross around my neck. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. <laughs> I can barely update my own website. <laughs> yeah, but it's um, it, it it is a. It, it's one of the it's certainly the challenge of writing a series of books i mean it, it, it's it's wonderful to, to to have a series of books with nice matching covers and all that sort of thing yeah um it, which is you know was always one of my ambitions <laughs> and now you've done it I, yeah it, it is interesting to, to um it, it, there are opportunities in writing a series and there are problems um yeah I did see something going around on um, Twitter a few days ago. Can, just, can, can we just put a previously on Battlestar Galactica page? Um, <laughs> every uh, okay, fine. I can read it if I want to, and it'll it'll um, it'll just catch me up. But I suppose again, you know, the challenge of you know threading these bits of previous story into the narrative in a way that makes it feel clear, but not being you know not being heavy handed. It's kind of all part of the craft of being a writer, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. So, I mean, have, have you always... I mean, you, you did an MA in creative writing, yes? Yeah, novel writing in 2001. Yeah. Right. So I went I went straight from, straight from a BA in um, drama and English into, um, a, into an MA, both at the same university, the University of Manchester. Mm-hmm. And thinking back to it, I first read this book, I think probably when I would have been an MA student, because mm-hmm. looking at the binding, it's definitely one of those books that I would have picked up for around about between 50 and 75p in one of <laughs> Didsbury's many great charity shops at the time and thoroughly yeah. enjoyed. It's obviously always been, I mean, yes. any well, writer, yeah. writer will answer the same thing. It's always been an ambition to, 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 to do. It's not just something that suddenly pops up when you're when yeah. you're in your middle age and said oh well, I think I might write a book yeah. yeah it's always been there and then you know I did I did the MA and then I put it put it aside for a very long time and kind of I kind of struggled to find my voice as they say mm-hmm. and then it only really started coming back well god how about five finished the, 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 and then six or seven years later I started doing cabaret again which is where yeah. my uh, sojourn in the wonderful world of burlesque happened and right. that was the point at which I started writing material again and we had a writing partner then uh, my friend Jonathan and we used to write things to put, write things and perform and um, we had off and as it happens Battlestar Suburbia sat, started off as an idea for a spec script for a um, for a radio oh, right which we couldn't quite get to work. And then we put it aside. And then a few years later, I think it was the, the trigger for it was the protests uh, in the city in the, kind of the, wake of, in the wake of the fir- wake of the financial crisis. And mm. there's the tent city, tent city at St. Paul's and kind of dissidents and things like that. And that was the thing that sort of originally started to you know compel me to write Battlestar Suburbia as kind of as, as a novel uh, which took me a long time I had a time I had a, a job in I live in Stoke Newington in London but I had a job that was based in High Street Kensington, Kensington at the time mm-hmm. and so the commute was disgusting because I had gone the central line which makes me feel sad or yeah. I could I could just 
get in there a little get this get in there a little bit later and get the circle line which is boring as all hell but at least I could get a seat mm. uh, and it was on I had an iPad and a keyboard at the time and quite a significant proportion of the first book was written on my lap on a corner seat at the very end of the train of the circle <laughs> between Liverpool right. Street and Street Kensington obviously now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so and then um and then uh, abby pops up saying uh it does pop up yeah do you do you want to write this in a sequel which is yes thank you very much i will yeah why not yeah <laughs> it had it had the the uh, the first book had sat in a drawer for a while i think i know you did uh, i listened to that sort of really lovely conversation you had with abby a couple of days ago and just that i think there is a difficulty around getting comic fiction published um, in general and I think particularly when it's within genre as well yeah um because I think there's this sort of I don't know what it is I mean I, I think I have a theory about what it is I think funny books are difficult to sell internationally and particularly mm. in the UK we have a publishing industry which is very export-led so I used to work in publishing listeners so <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's given me that perspective on it so I, I'd had, you know, I'd had, I'd had several, sort of several rejections on it. Was that it's funny? We don't really know what to do with that, mm. which is fair. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I, I remember going to a writers' conference when sorry. Some, <laughs> some agent uh, stood up and said, yeah, "If you are thinking of writing comedy, forget it. Yeah, not interested." We, I, I think, it's a shame because I was writing a comic novel at the time. So. <laughs> because the human urge to laugh, you know, takes up, you know, it takes up a great, you know, quite great deal of a, a great deal of space, doesn't it? Our consciousness. And yet it seems to be sold a bit short by literature. Yeah, it does. I, it does make me think a little bit of the um, the name of the rose. <laughs> if you uh, if you remember that, the, um, yeah. the pivoting around the fact that Aristotle might have wrote a tragedy, but he never wrote a comedy. <laughs> or wrote on tragedy but he never wrote on, uh, never wrote on comedy so we I don't think we have we don't have that kind of like that same sort of theoretical framework as it were around around comedy that kind of gives it gravitas no that's right and you can see it in the the lack of frames of reference for if 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 if, if a comic novel ever gets reviewed or anything that there just aren't many things that it is compared with yeah it's it's a rite of passage almost to be compared with douglas adams yeah if you write fiction and nick hornby if you write non-fiction yeah that's true and i suppose that a lot lots and lots and lots and lots of comic fiction is it appears in categories of one doesn't it mm. So you've kind of got these islands with nothing connecting them. So you've got Terry Pratchett over here, you've got Douglas Adams, it's quite near Terry Pratchett, but you know, there's still a fairly shallow sea between them. Then you've got Helen Fielding um, mm. over there in the corner. Then yep. we've got Kingsley Amos. We won't talk about Kingsley Amos because I don't like no. him. <laughs> we're not we're not, we're not going to talk about martin amos because he's at the bottom of the fucking crater and you know the great crater of a volcanic eruption um <laughs> as far as i'm concerned other people may like martin amos i don't get one of his books but well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually dreading asking someone if, if, if they'd like to be on this podcast and they're saying oh can we do money oh god no I, I, the 
my, my difficulty with Martin Amis is that I think he writes beautiful sentences in ugly books. And kind of that he kind of has you know, great capabilities as a prose stylist, which I could just find he's turned to really ugly ends. But you know, that's just my opinion. But I, uh, if we think about comic fiction, comic fiction is all about kind of like singulars. It's not, you know, we can't, it's not, it's not easy to group them together. We can't group Douglas Adams, Stella Gibbons, Terry Pratchett, mm. uh, Martin Amis, P.G. Woodhouse. You can't group them together. They're all no. funny, but they don't really share anything else other than that. Yeah. And yet... You know, look at any other medium. I mean, radio comedy, TV yeah. comedy. They, yeah. they, they exist as things. Mm. It's, it's, it's very odd. Yeah, weird. Yeah, but I guess that's what I'm trying to redress in the, by doing this thing. But um, <clears throat> need to find a few more, a few more listeners, I think. But uh, <laughs> baby steps, baby steps. Yeah. So apart from <clears throat> Battlestar Suburbia and its... Yeah. Um, what's the word? Not antecedents. Um, the ones, things that follow. Sequels. Do you have anything else that you're thinking of working on, or is that? Uh, is that yeah, I have uh, one thing um, which I put on hold because of you know the plague. Uh, yes. Having <laughs> which is a it's more in fantasy than in mm. science fiction, but it's about a about a magic about a magical world this time, which is rooted in me really getting fucked off with Harry Potter. And which is easy to do in the wonderful world of 2021. It's all based on the premise that, you know, Hogwarts is Hogwarts a bastion of inequality. Mm. Because if you of all of the wizards go to one school and it's a boarding school, who doesn't get to go to that school? Mm. Um, So the the world that I'm imagining is a it's about what state education looks like for people with magical ability. I, I, I did see you tweet about this. And I thought, oh, he's onto something there, and uh, that that could be really quite something. Because yeah. one thing I need to work I, on that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm quite, I'm interested in class as a writer. Um, mm. So if you know if anyone wants, <clears throat> my, want, uh, wants to re- want, want, does want to read my books, I'm kind of interested in sort of people who are you know fairly low down the socioeconomic pyramid um you know presenting them you know as people as heroes right people's heroes heroines rather than um rather than types and i kind of i i i'm sort of quite keen to explore kind of the and unpick the you know the often not alluded to class dynamics that come along with magic yeah no that's really interesting yeah i'll look forward to that (laughs) i mean it might be 10 years i don't know (laughs) I guess there are contracts to to be um, fulfilled for Battlestar uh, Suburbia. Yeah, <clears throat> for the moment, anyway. For the moment, yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming. Thank um, you. Yeah, if you've enjoyed this, or even if you haven't, but just feel sorry for us, please feel free to reward us by buying our books. Chris is on Twitter as C McCrudden, and his website is at www.battlestarsuburbia.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter as uh, John Pinnock, and my website is www.jonathanpinnock.com. And do please rate, review, and subscribe. You'll find this podcast in all the usual places. Next time, I'll be talking to Katie Darby about how not to write a novel, as well as her own work as novelist, creative writing tutor, and MC of Liars League. See you then.
and that is it.